And on the first day of unleavened bread, when they sacrificed the Passover lamb, his disciples said to him, Where will you have us go and prepare you to eat the Passover? And he sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the city, and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him. And wherever he enters, say to the master of the house, The teacher says, Where is my guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room, furnished and ready. There prepare for us. And the disciples set out and went to the city and found it just as he had told them. And they prepared the Passover. And when it was evening, he came with the twelve. And as they were reclining at table and eating, Jesus said, Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. And they began to be sorrowful and to say to him, one after another, is it I? He said to them, it is one of the twelve, one who is dipping bread into the dish with me. For the Son of Man goes as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had never been born. I have been so guilty of this. The Passover controversy that is so popular in Messianic and Hebrew root circles. And I will admit to having made some wrong judgment calls, I believe, in trying to make this into something that appeals to a modern audience where we want everything to line up. But uh, this week we are going to talk about something very important. Why do the synoptics all paint this picture of the meal seemingly, seemingly happening on the night of the 15th? And why does John clearly say it took place on the 14th? I've heard it all. Essene calendars, the Feast of the Firstborn, and moving it up a day because of the Passover crowds, and sacrificing the lamb as a Shelomim offering, as, you know, hinted might be possible by the Tosefta. Unfortunately, I even included one of these and not the early Passover, which is actually kind of possible in a book. And I'm wincing as I say this. Oh, you know, if I was only perfect in judgment. <laughs> but there is this very real thing with Messianics and Hebrew roots peeps where we go through this phase of wanting everything to be as Jewish as possible while missing the most Jewish thing of all, namely... Inspired authors crafting an account which tells a story and sometimes rearranges and rewrites historical elements in order to make that happen. What does that mean? Hmm. Stay tuned. Hi, I am Tyler Don Rosenquist and welcome to Character in Context where I teach the historical and ancient sociological context of scripture with an eye to developing the character of the Messiah. Oh no, I'm yawning. If you prefer written material, I have six years worth of blog at theancientbridge.com, as well as my six books available on Amazon, including a four-volume curriculum series dedicated to teaching scriptural context in a way that even kids can understand it called Context for Kids. And I have two video channels on YouTube with free Bible teachings for both adults and kids. You can find the link for those on my website. Past broadcasts of this program can be found at characterincontext.podbean.com and transcripts can be had for most broadcasts at theancientbridge.com. 
If you have kids, I also have a weekly broadcast where I teach them Bible context in a way that shows them why they can trust God and how he wants to have a relationship with them through the Messiah. And we do critical thinking skills as well. Now, all scripture this week comes courtesy of the ESV, the English Standard Version. But you can follow along with whatever version you want. A list of my resources can be found attached to the transcript for part two of this series at theancientbridge.com. Now, Jewish writers are really virtuosos of telling a story. And that hasn't changed in modern times. They have no qualms with playing in with and, you know, manipulating scripture in order to tell a story and make a point. Anyone who has read the Midrashic works of the rabbis, like the 15th century Sefer Hayasher, which has sadly been, you know, republished and passed off as the ancient book of Jasher, even though everyone knows where it came from. Well, obviously not everyone, but its provenance is not even debatable. Or uh, even earlier sectarian works like, you know, Jubilees, which predated the Messiah, um, you know, you've seen how the biblical record gets pretty mangled, and yet they weren't trying to rewrite scripture or to replace it. They were telling alternate stories in order to teach lessons, or in the case of Jubilees, to promote their sectarian calendar as legit in order to replace the one being used in Jerusalem. Too bad their math was abysmal. And the four Gospels are all telling the story that the early church was telling. That the betrayal, trial, death, burial, and resurrection was a final and conclusive retelling and retheming of the Passover and Exodus. Really, it was the Passover fulfilled, and so the Gospel accounts all tell that story accordingly. Now, the synoptics generally agree with one another, but John tells the story emphasizing entirely different things and so tells it differently. And this is a classically Jewish thing to do, to not worry about the details. Instead of being impeccably accurate like a modern history or science text, well, as accurate as we could be because we don't know everything about science or history, the Jewish writers were more concerned with conveying truth. Um, truth and accuracy are not always the same thing. Now, in chemistry, they are, right? There is no metaphysical dimension to adding, you know, A to B at a certain temperature and pressure and always coming out with C. And that's why I actually love chemistry. That's why I love studying context, too. But that's also why I need theology, because Theology isn't as easy to pin down and quantify. Context is like science and theology is a lot more like art. And the Gospel of John is very, very, very artistic. It's like Monet or Manet or Michelangelo gave birth to a gospel. And it's just breathtakingly beautiful. Now, the synoptics, on the other hand, are still artistic because all Jewish... Literature is very artistic, but it's 
more like Bob Ross guiding us along by the hand so that we understand the process. That is, you know, if Bob Ross lived 2,000 years ago and spoke an entirely different language and had as a context of life completely foreign to us. Well, you know, was the 70s. Okay, never mind. Or was it 80s? I don't know. 80s shoulder pads and leg warmers and terry cloth, head, terry cloth headbands. And oh, it's embarrassing now. Okay, so we're not going to get into all the theories or talk as much about how Mark's account compares with Matthew or Luke or especially John. Mark's account was the first account of the Passover passion to be penned. And so it has to be respected enough to be treated as unique because at the time it was. And remember, Mark wrote his entire gospel in such a way as to promote Yeshua, or you may call him Jesus, as the Yahweh warrior of Isaiah and the suffering servant uh, and the arm of the Lord, you know, who would serve both functions of conquering sin and death while also being the perfect representative of Israel. And that's why I chose to re-air Isaiah and the Messiah series while I was on sabbatical. This is where it really comes down to the nitty gritty. And we won't be going through these fast. Chapter 14 is going to take, you know, a minimum of like seven weeks, including last week. It's very long chapter, 72 verses long and requires a lot of context. To put that in perspective, chapter 13 is like 35 verses long and chapter 15 is 42 verses long. This is important. I don't want to rush through it. This material is far more complex. Understanding what Mark was trying to convey to the Roman believers is crucial. And remember why I said Roman believers, um, the gospel is unique in being filled with Latin concepts of time and Latin loan words. This wasn't written for a Jewish audience like Matthew and John. Okay, so let's start in chapter 14, verse 12. And on the first day of unleavened bread, when they sacrificed the Passover lamb, his disciples said to him, where will you have us go to prepare for you to eat the Passover? Now, although Nisan 14 is not biblically the first day of unleavened bread. I put biblically in quotation marks, you know, which would be Nisan 15 instead. By the first century, this had become an idiomatic way to talk about the Passover. They combined the eight days into one large festival, more like Sukkot. And calling it this, you know, protos, which can mean first or former, you know, it works... Either way, the Greek word for the Feast of Unleavened Bread is azumos, and I really wish that English also had a one-word description because calling the whole feast matzah would be kind of confusing. Now, according to Mark, this really can't be argued to be the 13th. That isn't the story he's telling. Not only was this protos, excuse me, I have got, I am so congested. I'm not congested. My sinuses are just bleh. Protos Himera Azimos, the first day of unleavened bread, um, which locks it specifically time-wise. Okay. It's further designated as the day that the lambs were slaughtered. 
This is for a Rome-based audience who has probably never visited the temple and who has likely never kept the Passover as a result and were largely of Gentile birth. Mark isn't going to be getting tricky about timelines here, nor will he worry about them much. Mark wants us to see the disciples getting a Passover reimagining. Okay, not meaning imaginary, but instead a revelation of the finality of God's redemptive plan, not only for the Jews, but also the world. Although, you know, the disciples aren't going to completely understand that anytime soon. And the author also wants us to see Yeshua as the new Passover lamb, the final Passover lamb. If we get hung up on days and everything needing to be precise, then we're being utterly un-Jewish and treating the text unfairly because that's not how God communicated to Israel. He entered into their context. That's how he communicates with everyone, where they, we are at. You want proof that details are secondary to truth and a wacky timeline? Read Jeremiah. Oy. It's like a Doctor Who episode, zipping back and forth in time, only without the aliens. Um, as for this, I don't get bogged down in post-enlightenment mindsets about details. Hear the story that the author of Mark is telling about how Yeshua embodied the ultimate Lamb of God. So, the word for Passover Lamb in Greek, Pascha, is also the word for the meal. And um, what in English and other Germanic languages is called Easter is um, called some variation of Pascha throughout the entire rest of the world. Kind of like how unleavened bread in Greek is just called the Greek word for matzo. Well, almost the whole world calls Easter something that sounds remarkably like the Greek word for Passover. Forget all the Ishtar nonsense by that. By the time that the word Easter became a thing, no one knew who she was anymore, and no one had worshipped her for many, many hundreds of years. When Babylon finally ceased to be a city after centuries of being conquered by empire after empire, she had been long since gone. Most likely, Easter comes from the Germanic name of the month. It tends to fall in. Now, let's look at the question. Where will you have us go to, and prepare for you to eat the Passover? The implication here is that they are preparing for Yeshua to eat the Pesach, in, which is the Hebrew word, Pascha, which is the Greek word, Passover lamb. Those are the two words for the Passover lamb. I want you to notice something important here that blew my mind when I read it in one of my commentaries. Who is asking the question? his disciples. It doesn't say one of the twelve. You know, Yeshua had a great many disciples, and as we will see from the things he will say, there were more than 13 people at the Last Supper. Verse 13. Sorry, Michelangelo. <laughs> or no, it's Leonardo da Vinci, isn't it? Who Why can't Yeah. <laughs> I can't remember all of a sudden. Oh my gosh, I can't remember. Okay, doesn't matter. Doesn't matter. Um... Verse 13, and he sent two of his disciples and said to them, go into the city and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him. Again, he sent two of his disciples, not specifically two of the twelve. 
And this incident should remind us of what happened at the beginning of chapter 11. Now, as they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethany and Pethpage at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, Why are you doing this? Say, The Lord has need of it, and we'll send it back here immediately. Again, not necessarily any of the twelve, but could have been other disciples. And I know I'm getting a bit ahead of myself, but I wanted you to have this in mind when we get to verse 14. And so he says to unnamed disciples to go into the city, and they were going to find something uncommon, which was a man carrying a jar of water. And he would meet them. So evidently he would be on the lookout for Galileans. Uh, or maybe people he'd met in the past. Yeshua's followers. What we don't know is where this would have occurred. It could have been uh, the fountain gate near the Gihon Spring. Or um, uh, the potsherd gate near the pool of Siloam. Or the water or casemat gate near the king's garden. It it doesn't really matter. It's just, you know, we get these things in the Bible where, you know, no matter how much you study geography, which which I really love to study the geography of Jerusalem. Um, it, you know, it's, it's, they're just not specific. Doesn't matter. But the whole thing about a man carrying water jar is odd for two reasons. One, men carried water skins, not jars. Fetching water in a jar was the work for women or servants. So this guy would kind of stick out like a sore thumb, and especially if he was just standing there with nothing to do on a busy day. So what do we get from this context-wise? This was a prearranged meeting. Likely the man was either a servant who was a disciple living within the city or the servant of a disciple. <laughs> or both, right? Um, on such a busy day, it'd be odd for anyone to spend time just standing there with a jar and not actively filling it. And because he was going to meet them and not the other way around, suggests that because Yeshua knew who he was, for all intents and purposes, you know, he was, he was being carefully watched. Well, I think it's likely that this was planned out sometime during the week so that he and the Twelve wouldn't call attention to themselves until it was actually time to enter Jerusalem to eat the Pesach, the Passover that night. I mean, after the parable of the tenants and the vineyard, and after Judas had likely reported all he knew to the chief priests, it was time to be careful and to make sure that he was not arrested until after he could instruct them on his becoming the Passover by taking them through the meal and identifying it with himself. So Yeshua gives them no address, maybe because he didn't want Judas to know where they were headed until they arrived. After all, Judas was looking for an easy opportunity to hand him over. Verse 14, and wherever he enters, say to the master of the house, the teacher says, where is my guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? So we do know that this man who met them was not the actual master of the house because they would not meet again with the master until they arrived. 
So likely a servant. Another possibility is a son sent on this mission. Again, you know, it, it doesn't matter to the overall story, just, you know, noticing things. Um, the master of the house will evidently understand who they are talking about and will show them the guest room, which is an upper room. And part of the question is to ask where he can eat with his disciples. Doesn't say just the twelve. But what is interesting is this, and Yeshua has done this before, and we've spoken about it. Wherever he goes, he acts the role as of the host, despite being in someone else's home. He breaks the bread. He pours the wine. He speaks the blessings over both. That is the job of the master of the house, the host, not the visitor. Despite coming to serve humanity, when he's at a meal, he takes the role of host. And why should we notice this at all, huh? Because of the messianic banquet imagery that would have been very meaningful to Jewish hearers. Um, and here, uh, and if you don't know what the messianic banquet is, it's supposed to be the banquet that occurs at the end of the age at, at Messiah's table, okay? Where in some Jewish lore, you know, uh, the, the, the righteous feast on the body of, of Leviathan. <laughs> I don't know if that sounds very yummy, but anyway, um, and so anyway, and here he asks an odd question. He doesn't say, where is your guest room? That would be what we would ask. We might ask, um, where's the room where I'll be eating? He says, where is my guest room? Again, this is host language. Oh, verse 15. And he will show you a large upper room furnished and ready. There prepare for us. Now, this isn't simply an upper room, but a large one. Remember that Greek word, uh, megas? So, you know, this man is likely quite wealthy and evidently he's expecting them. Otherwise, this is a prediction, but that doesn't make as much sense given the circumstances. So as much as folks like to paint this as something supernatural, I see it as much more like something that was planned ahead of time because Yeshua knew the importance of hiding the final location from the Twelve and especially Judas. Um, and another reason I say this is because he finds his way there, and if it was just a matter of being a prophetic prediction, he could have given them an address and just had them show up there. And by address, I mean, like, go to the house of whoever, the whatever, or the son of whatever. Okay, that's how. Yeah, it wasn't like street numbers, you know. <laughs> like, God telling Ananias that he would find Paul in the house of Judas on the street called Straight in Acts 9 or... In Acts 10, where God told Cornelius to search for the house of Simon the Tanner by the sea. And I, I know a lot of people might be kind of upset by my saying that it wasn't, you know, this big prophetic announcement. But is it needed? I mean, compared to what to all the other stuff he's done, wouldn't that be kind of like, you eh, know, whatever. He doesn't need to um, prophetically predict everything um, 
that's going to happen. It's perfectly acceptable for him to have, you know, arranged things ahead of time. I mean, he was destroying the, you know, demonic realm. He, uh, he was casting out demons. He was, he was curing the paralyzed. He was, you know, um, rebuking fevers. He was healing the sick. He, he was raising the dead. He fed 5,000 people. The, he walked on water. Um, really prophetically, you know, that's small potatoes. <laughs> that's like, it's like, eh, well, what do I do today? You know, it's, it's just not exciting. <laughs> so it, it wasn't necessary. It doesn't detract from his majesty at all. Anyway, we will be back in just a few minutes. Rosenquist, and welcome back to the second half of Character in Context. And this week, we have been talking about the controversial Passover controversy, <laughs> where, you know, it's, it's, there's so much debate about was it a Passover? Was it not a Passover? And I pretty much said it doesn't matter because that's not what the author of Mark was trying to do. He was trying to communicate that the Passover was being, um, ultimately redefined and recentered around Yeshua, or you may call him Jesus. So let's just keep going. Of course, we're in Matthew 14, and uh, we're uh, verse 16 now. And the disciples set out and went to the city and found it just as he had told them, and they prepared the Passover. Um, no mention of astonishment here that everything was as Yeshua had said it was, so it seems to be their understanding or assumption that arrangements had been made previously. You know, so often when Yeshua does something amazing, there is a narration about how they marveled at it. Uh, none of that here. Uh, pulling John into the mix really quick. Uh, we know that Yeshua would stay at the home of the beloved disciple when in Jerusalem, and this might be his house, although we don't know that this disciple was a Jerusalemite. Um, and so they prepared the Passover, but what exactly did this mean? If they were keeping the Passover a day early, which I believe they might have been in order to make sure that Yeshua died as the lambs were being slaughtered the next day, it means that they had to buy what was needed for the feast and they had to have at least two lambs purchased and slaughtered at the temple as Shalemim offerings. Um, on the 14th, that happened starting at 3 p.m., but I believe they would sacrifice the Shalemim offerings anytime during the day after the morning to meet, of course. Um, but I would imagine that if this was designated for the Passover to fulfill the commandment to slaughter it between the evenings, that they would have done it after the afternoon noon temid, uh, and hence after around 3 p.m. And I say around because it wasn't like they had that sort of a clock reckoning. Okay, nobody did in um, those days. The lamb would uh, be 
brought back to where they were eating and would be roasted whole on an upright spit. No bones could be broken. It was not a normal offering where it was more formally butchered. And I say two lambs because for a Passover gathering, there was a requirement to have um, one lamb, at least per every 10 people, so that everyone could get some. So a representative per lamb would go to the temple. Not everyone. Too many people. They also needed wine, bitter herbs, matzah. These are your Passover staples that we know from other contemporary uh, writings were part of the celebration at that time. Other things we aren't entirely sure about, and some didn't come into play until after the destruction of the temple. You know, things like the egg and the lamb shank bone. Obviously, those, you know, those weren't needed before uh, the destruction of the temple. Uh, verse 17 and when it was evening, he came with the twelve. Okay, so here's the big reason why I believe there were other disciples there and the ones doing the preparation weren't among the twelve. The disciples who prepared the meal had a lot of work to do. Um, and they could have been any gender for that matter. You know, uh, although having women sacrifice wasn't normal. Um... Although, you, it, so, you know, you, you'd at least need one man because women didn't go off wandering about alone and entering the home of a man they weren't related to, right? Uh, but preparations were made and obviously had to be monitored. No one's leaving the all-important lamb unattended. Evening would have come around 6 p.m. that time of year. And this was a festive occasion. Generally, it was the only time all year when most Jews would be eating meat. But Yeshua breaks the festive atmosphere with this dire prediction. Verse 18. And as they were reclining at table and eating, Jesus said, Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. Reclining at table, we've talked about this before, is what was done at a leisurely informal meal. It was something that was associated with wealth and having the leisure to take your time dining. Hardly what would be associated with the normal meal of a working class family. But on the Passover memorials, unlike the original Passover where they were commanded to eat standing, staves in hand, and prepared to leave, um, and sandals on too, they behaved as free men instead of the slaves they had once been. Um... On subsequent festivals, each family ate like kings to symbolize their freedom. And as they're reclining with Yeshua as their host, offering his hospitality, he says the unthinkable. He says that one of his very own disciples will betray him and drives the point home by mentioning that it is someone eating with him. And this is unthinkable for two cultural reasons. First, in an honor-shame culture, one did not ever betray one's teacher. In fact, it didn't matter if you were a Jew or a pagan. You didn't do it. There's this story I love to tell that I read a long time ago in a great book called After Paul Left Corinth by Bruce Winter, which was talking about the problems with competitiveness between philosophical schools and their disciples, also called zealots, not, you know, the kinds that were responsible for the destruction of the temple, though. 
Now, evidently, Philostratus tells a tale where a follower of one philosopher was harassing another philosopher and nitpicking every little error, which students did to show their loyalty to their own teacher. And the students of the philosopher who was being harassed beat the boy so hard that they accidentally killed him. And Paul and Apollos found themselves mired in this sort of nonsense in Corinth with people forming factions based on whose teachings they wanted to align themselves with. But in the case of Yeshua here, they all had one teacher and the culture really demanded that they not only be loyal, but also protective and even loyal to the death. The Pharisaic houses of Hillel and Shammai also operated this way with this sort of fierce competitiveness. A student betraying his philosophical teacher was worse than betraying a father because a father only gives you life, whereas your teacher, in the case of Judaism, was giving you the Torah, and in the case of Greco-Roman values, your teacher was giving you wisdom. Second problem. In the ancient world and in many cultures today, eating with someone was and is not simply about food. Breaking bread with someone is a sacred and solemn act of pact of mutual goodwill and help. You can't betray someone who offers you hospitality, and especially if there's salt involved. It's no big deal to us Westerners who really have very little commanding our loyalty as far as ritual goes, and maybe we have nothing. I can't think of anything offhand that is particularly sacred to us. But to them, it was an act that incorporated an aspect of the divine, and there were not only honor issues involved, but also the idea that one would be held accountable by their deity for betraying the act of hospitality. This is another reason why it was so important that Yeshua was acting the role of host. And he was accusing someone at the table of a horrific and unthinkable crime against God and all that was sacred in ancient Near Eastern and first century culture. I can't overemphasize the impact of these words on his dinner companions. And even worse... It, uh, it was the Passover. The 3rd century uh, common era Syriac Menander has this to say about betraying someone you've shared a meal with, and he with whom you have had a meal, do not walk with him in a treacherous way. Third thing I wanted to point out is the word for betray, because we will be seeing it a lot. We saw it last week, too. Uh, we saw it repeatedly in the Passion Predictions. The word in Greek translated as betrayed is paradidomi. The second and third Passion Predictions in Mark 9.31 and 10.33 use it as well to describe how he will be delivered or handed over to the Jerusalem leadership and then to the Gentiles. It is also used in the Septuagint to describe Yahweh handing his people over to the Gentiles for judgment. Of course, that's the Greek the authorized Greek translation of the Old Testament that predates Yeshua. So this is no small level of betrayal here. Uh, the Septuagint that the disciples were familiar with hearing used this language for the direst of circumstances. This would be no casual betrayal, but a hand, handing over to actual judgment. Um, we talked about a lot about this at length last week, so we won't do that again. Verse 19. At this point, oh, sorry, um, they began to be sorrowful and say to him one after another, is it I? So at this point, everyone, the 12 and the others in attendance are all questioning themselves. 
This has to be a mistake. This couldn't possibly be anything that anyone would do on purpose. Someone was going to do something stupid and get Yeshua into trouble. Surely, you know. Um, I believe that's why each of them was questioning himself or herself. All right. We can all see ourselves pulling some boneheaded stunt and causing trouble. I mean, geez, Peter and James and John were all notorious for it. And so they're going, please tell me that I'm not going to be responsible for judgment coming upon our teacher. And, and they're taking it very seriously. And I did say he and she because um, Yeshua had a lot of female disciples. Uh, it, it talks about that in several places, but his mother would certainly be there. And um, the Marys and Salome and others. Um, anyway, uh, verse 20. He said to them, it is one of the twelve. One who is dipping bread into the dish with me. It just got worse. It isn't just one of the many disciples of Yeshua, but actually one of the twelve. Even as they're all reeling from the accusation, everyone outside the twelve must have been breathing a sigh of relief. And even as they were even more shocked, that it could be one of the insiders. I mean, what would he say next? That it was one of the three? But again, we have more here than meets the eye. No one dips with anyone of higher status, but after. Yeshua here is addressing a huge social breach. Someone isn't going to do it by accident, but with contempt. No one at that Passover should have considered themselves worthy of dipping at the same time. He was their teacher, and in the ancient world, that was a huge status to have. Someone at the table will not only hand him over for judgment, but they will do it because they consider him to be on or beneath their same level. Verse 21. For the Son of Man goes as is written of him. But woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. So here we have another son of man self-designation. Remember the difference between Messiah and son of man in the first century. Son of man, you know, we get that from Daniel. Um, it was largely undefined as an actual title because it can be used in a lot of ways. But Messiah was very heavily laden with meaning during that time. A lot of folks had a lot of ideas about the Messiah, and at that point, none of them revolved around suffering. In fact, we don't see the idea of a suffering Messiah within rabbinic writings until Pasikta Rabati written around 800 of the Common Era. At this point, as far as I know, all messianic expectations of the first century included a wiping out of Israel's en enemies, and especially the Romans. Yeshua could not self-designate as a Messiah without bringing all that baggage and expectations into the mix. Son of Man, on the other hand, was a clean slate he could work with. Was he the Messiah? Well, of course. But he had to redefine it through the cross before he could be identified that way. Ah, oh, and he said, the Son of Man goes as it is written about him. Uh, of him. Again, we covered that in Isaiah and the Messiah um, series, you know, on Isaiah 40 through 56. Of course, not only there, but 
you know, that's, that's the most glaringly obvious example. This was Yahweh's plan all along. It wasn't like Yeshua was showing up and expecting Israel to behave any differently to him than they had to the other prophets. We're, and if he showed up today, Lord help him for what we'd do to him. They had exchanged the idolatry of worshiping pagan gods and had simply become hard-hearted and disobedient in other ways. You know, it's the sad state of unchanged human hearts or not changed enough human hearts. A woe is declared against the man who sets the events into action, even though this was God's plan. And woe isn't a casual sorrow. It's judgment language for something that will not be excused because Judas... Um, whom we will see in later weeks as the betrayer, wasn't a pawn or a puppet. Um, so he had a decision to do this. He had contempt for his teacher and decided to profit before bailing. It wasn't just a biblical crime, but a crime that even the pagans would be horrified about. Again, the word betrayed here is paradidomi, handed over to judgment. And no one is suspecting Judas at this point. Be clear on that. There is no hint of suspicion. No one can imagine anyone is being guilty. Not even Peter is making accusations, which, you know, really says something. It would be better for this man if he had not been born. Let's, um, let's look at this theme briefly in scripture. Okay. Cause we see it quite a bit. The entirety of Job chapter 3 is a lament from Job about what life is like for the man who wishes he wished he had never been born. I trust we don't need to go into the specifics because Job had it bad, really bad, horrifically bad. But we also have uh, the account in Jeremiah 20, 14 through 18, who also had it bad, just not as bad as Job. Cursed be the day on which I was born. The day when my mother bore me, let it not be blessed. Cursed be the man who brought the news to my father, a son is born to you, making him very glad. Let that man be like the cities that the Lord overthrew without pity. Let him hear a cry in the morning and an alarm at noon, because he did not kill me in the womb. So my mother would have been my grave and her womb forever great. Why did I come out from the womb to see toil and sorrow and spend my days in shame? I mean, the guy had been thrown in a pit and stockades and all sorts of horrid things. Just, you know. Mm. So, you know, this is a lament from Jeremiah. Um, <laughs> beaten, put in stocks, persecuted, thrown in a pit. Um, dang. I mean, who was treated worse than the prophets and Job? Okay. <laughs> however, Job and Jeremiah were treated, you know, however they were treated to um, make them wish they had never been born. Worse was in store um, for Judas. Because with Job and Jeremiah, that was only a lament. Yeshua is saying that for Judas, it will be a reality. And you know... The betrayers always feel like they have a good reason. Oh my gosh. Have you guys been listening to the Rise and Fall of Mars Hill's podcast? Of course, it's all wrapped up now. I'm going to have to link that in the transcript. It's a nightmare listening to what happened, and I highly recommend it. Uh, this Mark Driscoll, 
Okay. The kind of treachery and betrayal he was engaged in and encouraged others to support. Ah. And the guy has another church again. Got off scot-free and he has 78,000 YouTube subscribers and you can still buy his books. And he just left this carnage behind him and destroyed people and, and wrecked faith. And... You know, he was operating out of a desire for profit and fame and self-promotion and self-preservation. And I guarantee you that he had what he would call a good reason for everything he did and everything he still does. Betrayers aren't people who see themselves as villains. They always have a justification, right? And that should scare us because we can do it too. And sometimes we do do it. Um, a lot of people do it and paint themselves as heroes and defenders of the faith and, and martyrs and victims. But in the end, you know, Yeshua, he talked about leaving the 99 in behalf of saving the one. And what did I see the other day? This great little meme poster thing on Facebook says, um, when Yeshua talked about, uh, leaving the 90, Yeshua talked about, uh, leaving the 99 to go after the one. He didn't talk about staying behind with the 99 to talk about how horrible the one was for backsliding. Ow! I love it. Anyway, rabbit trail. Okay. Was this a Passover meal? Well, the text claims it was in more ways than one. The meal is late at night instead of during the afternoon. Spending money on oil was not a casual thing, and so you don't see a lot of meals in ancient cultures at night, but with the Passover, a night meal is commanded. The meals in Jerusalem, when they had otherwise been staying in Bethany, they are reclining, which is also not just a normal circumstance. Next week, we will continue on and see that they're drinking wine and their elements to what they're doing that clearly reflect the Haggadah of the Passover. Passover is being redefined and reimagined around the person of Yeshua and the greater exodus of the cross. So the question isn't so much, was this a Passover meal? But instead, how is God changing the Passover to make a way for a permanent and worldwide exodus to Mount Zion? All right. Uh, an exodus out of sin and death. Actually, exodus is to come out of some place, not to go to place, right? Sorry, I did that wrong. So how is God changing things in order to become the one God of the entire world and not just the God of Israel? Remember that the old wineskins cannot contain the new wine and you can't patch an old cloak with new fabric. As he promised in Isaiah 42, 9, 43, 19, and 46, 48, 6, Yahweh's doing a new thing that he promised would be so monumental that they would all but forget all the old things. Um, the old Passover wasn't big enough anymore. Okay? You know, um, just like with the three passion prediction, predictions, we're going to see a repeat of a theme over the next number of weeks. Yeshua makes a proclamation that is really, truly upsetting, uh, which precipitates a crisis in response. Here it's 
Someone's going to betray me. And then the mad scramble begins to find out who it is. Next week, Yeshua will repeat the prediction in the garden. And the crisis response, well, not next week, actually, it's going to be a few weeks. And the crisis response will be denials and oaths. At the arrest, there will be a crisis response of violence and abandonment in the courtyard of the high priest. Excuse me, I just had sore throat for weeks now. <laughs> um, in the courtyard of the high priest, there will be an accusation followed by a crisis response of denial. So, so five of these in this chapter of the gospel, okay, of this gospel, and, and we can add to it the crisis responses, the three crisis responses to the three passion predictions, where the disciples really just responded inappropriately. And, of course, the wise thing to do is to see ourselves in the responses instead of marveling at their weakness, because that's us. We respond badly when shocked or challenged or frightened or angry or, gosh, just about anything. Oh, my goodness. So, I was going to do um, the breaking of the bread and the, the drinking of the wine and, and all that stuff next week. But I think that we need to talk about Passover in the first century. So that's what we're going to do next week. Yeah, that'll be, that'll work. That'll work. Uh, we'll talk about the first Exodus or the first Passover. Talk about how it kind of morphed, uh, throughout the Torah to change. Um, from, you know, when you're, ra everybody's right next to the tabernacle to everybody has to come to a central location, uh, different things that they did, uh, and didn't do. So that'll be fun. I will, um, I'll see you next week for that. Be blessed.